One dark and foggy night, deep in the woods, a man wandered, lost in Hungary. Suddenly the forest magically parts to reveal a mysterious castle. To his surprise, the doors open by themselves, and he enters. Enchanted candelabras held by human arms that come out from the walls suddenly light, leading him to a marvelous feast. Once done eating, he dozes for a while, only to be awakened by a lion's roar. As he leaves, a rose bush reminds him of a request from his loyal daughter for one of the flowers. What harm could there be in snatching one of the roses? In this case, quite a lot, as the rose is the property of the beast. Today I talk about the 1946 film Beauty and the Beast, and the lady responsible for me watching this movie is Nancy Fry. Am I going to thank Nancy or curse her name? Find out at the end of today's episode. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the third Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about a film recommended by a listener. For those new to the podcast, once a month, a listener takes over the show by making me watch a movie they have a fondness for. At the end of the show, I will either celebrate the listener or curse their name for all eternity. Nancy Fry has been a longtime collaborator of my old podcast and is also part of this one. She has recommended Jean Cocteau's French romantic fantasy film, The Belle at la Bette or, in English, Beauty and the Beast. Now, because this is the French film, based on a story by a French novelist, you're going to hear me attempt to pronounce many French names. And, as Steve Martin said, It's like those French have a different word for everything. So you never appreciate your language till you go to a foreign country that doesn't have the courtesy to speak English. Anyway, I apologize now. By the way, I use a site called pronouncewiki.com, so blame them. Beauty and the Beast is a French film released on October 29, 1944. Produced by André Paul V., it was written and directed by Jean Cocteau, based on a novel by Jean-Marie Le Prince de Lamont. Am I supposed to pronounce the T at the end? I'm not sure. But anyway, it stars Jean-Marie, Josette Day, Marie Paralee, Nan Garmon, Michelle Auclair, and Marcel André. The cinematographer was Henri Alican, the editor was Claude Iberrera, and the music was by Georges O'Rique. It is in black and white, 93 minutes long, and is in French with English subtitles. Now, after watching this film, a couple of things instantly came to mind. First, while I'm not totally opposed to the colorization of films, I mean, 
If someone wants to take a film like Bride of the Monster and add color, why not? I'm sure if Ed Wood had the money, it would have been shot in color. But there are certain films that should never, ever be given the digital crayon treatment. Films like The Third Man, The Maltese Falcon, and Sunset Boulevard need to remain and only be seen in their glorious black and white. The artists who made these films went to great lengths to use the format to their advantage. The lack of color with its lighting and shading are as much a part of the story as the dialogue being spoken. By taking that away, you take away part of the tale. And that holds true for this film as well. The second thing I thought about was Disney's 1991 version of Beauty and the Beast and how that film really bugged me. Now, I've seen this film more than any adult should ever have to. My lovely daughter was the right age when Disney began to have its resurgence in the late 80s. Starting with, if I'm not mistaken, The Little Mermaid in 1989, Disney, who had not done a quality film in years, began trying once again. It was also at the beginning of home video. What this meant to me was once these new films appeared on videotape, films like The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, The Lion King, and Beauty and the Beast, they were watched again and again and again. And back in those days, we only had one TV in the house. What drove me crazy about the animated Beauty and the Beast was... Okay, a selfish prince is cursed by a woman because he wouldn't offer her shelter. What is this curse? Well, he looks like a beast. But he can still walk, talk, eat, and even have sex, I guess, if the opportunity arises. That's fine. But why are his servants cursed? Why is Murder, She Wrote doomed to be a teapot and her son a chipped mug? Why is Luminaire a candelabra? What did they do that was so awful they were transformed into something worse than a beast? And why are they happy, singing songs and whatnot? I'd be pretty bitter. Sorry, it just makes no sense. But anyway, I'm here to talk about the 1946 film, not a film produced by a conglomerate that's taking over the world. This classic film was made by a poet. Now, one thing I'm really enjoying by having someone suggest films for me to watch, is that not only am I seeing films that I would not normally see, but I'm also learning about the people involved in the making of these films. Like, I didn't know anything about Jean Cocteau. Jean was an openly gay French poet, playwright, novelist, designer, filmmaker, visual artist, and critic. He was a pretty remarkable person. Cactu was born in 1889 to a well-to-do family and was a problem child right from the start, though his parents encouraged him in the arts. At the age of 10, his father committed suicide, and he became very close to his mother, which would affect much of his later work. He was also heavily criticized for his involvement with the Nazis in their occupation of France during World War II. I'm really not sure how involved he was, or if he just went along with them to keep working. And I'm not really going to get into that, primarily because I don't know enough and it doesn't have a lot to do with the film. I do know that Cactu battled opium addiction for most of his life. By the time of his death in 1963, he had amassed a large body of work, poems, novels, plays, essays, drawings, and films. 
He was a true Renaissance man. But there's way too much about his life for this episode. After all, it's about his film. If you're interested, I'll have a link to a documentary you can watch about him on YouTube. Now, the original fairy tale was originally written by Gabrielle Suzanne Barbet de Villeneuve and was published in 1740. It was a very long tale, so in 1758, Jean-Marie Le Prince Beaumont published an abridged version, and from what I've read, it seems to be the version most people know. Somewhere between 1889 and 1913, Scottish poet and novelist Andrew Lang published a version of it as well. And since then, all over the world, different versions have been created by many people. Now, I've read that the basic theme was originally intended to prepare young girls in 18th century France for arranged marriages. I'm sort of guessing it was like, hey, you're going to marry this guy. I know he doesn't look all that handsome, but well... Belle learned to love a beast, right? Yeah, he's ugly, but you should be able to deal with Larry. Anyway, Cactus's film was based on Beaumont's version. It was the first film he had done since he made The Blood of the Poet 16 years earlier. The story was brought to him by his lover, Jean Marais. Marais had acted in a few of Cactus's plays, but really wanted to be a movie star. In the film, he plays three parts, the Beast, the Prince, and Belle's brother's friend, Avenot, who wants to marry her. Cactu began working on the film during German's occupation of France. Besides doing it for Marais, there might have been other reasons as well. At this time, making a film may have been easier than a play, which were heavily watched and censored by the Nazis. Just to get a license to do a play was an agonizing experience. They didn't, however, pay that much attention to films. After all, they knew they could just cut anything they didn't like, or even shelve it if they thought it was necessary. Also, by the time he finished, he was hoping it would help revitalize the French film industry. Making the film was filled with all types of problems. Both Cactu and Marais were plagued with illnesses like boils, carbuncles, rashes, and eczema. Both were hospitalized at least once during the 10-month shoot. Weather was a constant problem. As soon as Cactu got a shot ready, the sun would disappear, or sometimes he would wait hours for the sun to come out, only to be disappointed when it never would. There was also a nearby flight school that was constantly flying planes overhead, and children at play from a local village could occasionally be heard. The horse used for Magnificent was a real circus horse and was not too cooperative on the set. He was frisky and known to throw actors off, so much so that Josette Day, the actress who played Belle, refused to get on it. The scenes with her riding the horse were performed by an extra. Some of the props were hard to come across, like the white sheets at the end. In war-torn France, clean white sheets were hard to find. In fact, Cactu wanted a lot more for that scene, but what you see in the movie is all that he could find. There's also a dead deer that her father comes across, but no deer was anywhere to be found. Even the local butcher couldn't help, as the meat was scarce. What you see in the film was a dead dog they found, made to look like a deer. Film stock was very sparse, so they took what they could get. Often they had to judge the quality of the stock and judge what scenes they would use it for. 
Now, I'm guessing a really good film would be saved for the more important scenes. Now, as soon as the film begins, it breaks the fourth wall by showing a clapboard and then Cactu drawing the credits on a chalkboard. After the credits, we see the words on the chalkboard that roughly translate into Children believe what we tell them. They have complete faith in us. They believe that a rose plucked from a garden can plunge a family into conflict. They believe that the hands of a human beast will smoke when he slays a victim, and that this will cause him shame when a young maiden takes up residence in his home. They believe a thousand other simple things. I ask of you a little of this childlike sympathy, and to bring us luck, let me speak four truly magical words. Childhood's open sesame. Once upon a time. According to writer and cultural historian Christopher Frayling, those words were aimed at the critics in France who had recently been hard on him. Frayling said it meant, Why can't critics be a little less sophisticated? Why can't they be less critical? Why can't they see like a child? Personally, I think it was aiming at all of us saying, Hey, this is a fairy tale. So watch it as a fairy tale. But now let's take a break from my ramblings to hear a Nancy Fry perspective on Beauty and the Beast. Hello, folks. Nancy Fry here again. I kind of feel like I'm becoming the Andy Rooney of celluloid days, since these segments are mostly me rambling on with my personal opinions. Hope that's okay, because for now, that's what's springing from my middle-aged brain. As Jeff has probably mentioned, this week's film selection was my idea. I'm a sucker for classic fairy tales, and this one goes way back. For some reason, I thought it was a Grimm Brothers story, because they wrote so many of our staple fairy tales. But this story is from 18th century France. Okay, now I get why the Disney version is so French. I grew up reading the classic children's stories, but as I got older and found the original versions of things especially Grimm Brothers stories, I realized that the books my mom had given me were often sanitized for the modern age. Modern for me, being the 1960s. This was a common practice in the 19th century. Thomas Bodler, a late 18th century, early 19th century editor, is famous for cleaning up, quote-unquote, Shakespeare, so as not to offend the fine sensibilities of the delicate. Apparently, subsequent editors felt children's tales needed to be bodlerized. Yes, that's a real term. In the early 20th century, for similar reasons. Read the original Grimm stories sometime. They're pretty gruesome. Lots of horrible and violent endings for the evil queens, nasty stepmothers, and other baddies. We're talking red-hot irons and barrels lined with spikes bad. Then there's the poor little mermaid. Spoiler, in the original, she basically commits suicide after the prince chooses a human girl over her. Needless to say, I wasn't a fan of that story. I even hated a lot of standard classic romantic, quote-unquote, stories. Romeo and Juliet, anybody? Seriously, the term fairy tale ending should really be Disney ending, because it's really only Disney that has the consistently happy conclusions. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. 
Speaking of film versions, I was surprised to learn that this was the first film to tackle this story. It seems like Georges Millet or somebody of that vintage would have done it since fanciful tales were the subject of so many early films, but nope. This 1946 gem is the first, some would argue, the best. I first saw it as a kid one summer night on PBS. There were some parts that didn't hold my attention particularly well, mostly the scenes at the country house with Belle's family. But every moment in the forest and at the beast's castle had my full attention. The imagery was laser-etched into my brain. Cocteau was a visual artist and a poet, and like all good filmmakers, he shows us rather than telling us. There really isn't that much dialogue in this movie, and what there is is to the point. In the original story, Belle is served by invisible hands. For the film, Cocteau chose to use actual hands, probably for practical reasons considering the limited effects of the time, but it works. The Hall of the Candelabra is a visual I've never forgotten. Belle gliding down a passage of billowing curtains. Belle crying actual diamonds. Belle magically transformed from a country girl into a queen as she's carried into her bedchamber. Unforgettable moments. Jeff will probably discuss this, but to this day, nobody really knows how he achieved some of the effects in this film. There's a lot of reversed footage, slow-mo, and other in-camera tricks, but that doesn't cover everything. I thought I had the smoking hands thing figured out a few years ago after taking a hot bath in a cold room and watching the steam boil off my hands when I pulled them out of the hot water. But on watching the film this time, I don't think that was it. It's definitely smoke, not steam. If anybody out there has an idea, I'm all ears. In subsequent years, other filmmakers have given us some very good versions of this story. In 1976, a TV version aired starring George C. Scott and Trish Vandeveer. I remember watching it and liking it. I'll have to hunt it down for fun. In the mid-80s, Shelley Duvall produced a series called Fairy Tale Theater. Some of you in my age group probably remember it. She hired Roger Vadim, yes, the director of Barbarella, to direct her Beauty and the Beast episode. It's basically a frame-by-frame -frame remake of the Cocteau version, right down to the costume design and the Beast makeup design. It stars Klaus Kinski and Susan Sarandon, and they're good, of course. It's one of the best installments of that show, but I think that's because it's basically aping the Cocteau film. So points off for a lack of originality. It just feels like they repackaged the Cocteau version for a younger, less attentive audience. Also, fairy tale theater was all shot on video, so the aesthetic is a bit jarring. The Beauty and the Beast episode is the only one that shot the exteriors and location scenes on film, but all the interiors are video. You know, and soap operas still maintain that feel for some reason, but I'm glad the video look for everything else was a short-lived phenomenon. Curious about that? See Saturday morning Sid and Marty Croft TV shows in the 60s. Well, post-H.R. Puffin stuff, anyway. Most well-known these days is probably the Disney animated version in 1991. When I saw that in the theater on its first release, I was pleasantly impressed by the visuals, the story, and the music. Even then, I thought it would be a great live musical with basically no changes. Turns out I was right, and they did turn it into a stage musical, although I guess they added some more songs. I'll wrap this ramble up by mentioning how much I love the costuming in this film. From the 17th century garb of Belle's family, to the fantastical trailing sleeves on the beast doublet, to the organ pipe cartridge pleats on Belle's gown, it's all so sumptuously theatrical. I love the moment 
when Belle says she's not used to wearing finery or having others wait on her. I'm not sure where I'd wear those gowns, but I wouldn't mind putting one of them in my closet if she doesn't want it. Thanks, Nancy. It's always wonderful to hear your perspective on things. And as far as the special effects, I listened to quite a few film historians talk about this film, and many of the special effects were explained, some of them that I talk about during this podcast. But no one mentioned how the smoking hands were done. You know, as you talked about the difference between film and video, it reminds me when I was a, a youngster watching Monty Python's Flying Circus. I couldn't figure out in my head why the indoor scenes look so different from the outdoor scenes until later I learned that the indoor scenes were done on video and the outdoor scenes were done on 16-millimeter film. So uh, it is sort of a jarring jump between the two. Anyway, thanks again. Back to my story. The film starts like this. Belle lives with her brother, two mean sisters, thinks Cinderella, and her father. Also hanging around is her brother's handsome friend who wants to marry Belle. The first time we see Belle, it's a reflection in the shiny floor. It's so perfect because reflections play such a huge part in the story, with the magic mirror and all. Now, recently her father, who was once rich, went broke as three ships he owned sank. Belle is devoted to her father, while her sisters are just selfishly concerned with their financial situation. When news comes that one of the ships had returned to port, her father thinks this might turn things around, so off he goes, hoping to be rich once again. Before he leaves, he asks his three daughters what present he should bring back for them. Both the selfish sisters ask for dresses, but Belle only asks for a single rose. Unfortunately, her father finds that all the ship's cargo has been seized by creditors, so he still broke. He has no money to spend on lodging, so he's forced to go home on a dark, foggy night and gets lost. Coming across a castle, he is magically invited in to find a meal waiting. After a nap, he is awakened by the sound of a lion's roar. As he leaves, he sees a rose bush and remembers Belle's wish. Plucking one of the roses, the beast suddenly appears. The beast tells him that he must die for stealing the rose, roses being one of the most important things to him. But then the beast offers him a deal. He can leave as long as he sends back one of his daughters to take his place. The beast allows him to use his magical horse, Magnificent, to guide him home. At home, he tells his family what happened, fully intending to go back by himself. The two mean sisters blame Belle for wanting that rose. But later, Belle sneaks off on Magnificent to take her father's place. Once at the castle, she's given her own room and told, and told she would meet the beast only at dinner. At dinner, the beast asked her if she would marry him. She responds no, and he says that he will ask that question every night from now on at dinner. Now about this scene, the late, great Roger Ebert wrote this. Those familiar with the 1991 cartoon will recognize some of the elements of the story, but certainly not the tone. Cactu uses haunting images and bold Freudian symbols to suggest that emotions are at a boil in the subconscious of his characters. 
Consider the extraordinary shot where Belle waits at the dining table in the castle for Beast's first entrance. He appears behind her and approaches silently. She senses his presence and begins to react in a way that some viewers have described as fright, although it's clearly orgasmic. Before she even sees him, she is aroused to her very depths, and a few seconds later, she tells him she cannot marry a beast. She toys with a knife that is more than a knife. Roger, I didn't see that, but you know better than me, so anyway. The exteriors for the home Belle and her family live in was a manor house in France that Cactu rented for two weeks for 80,000 francs. I have no idea if that's a lot of money or not. The interiors were filmed on a soundstage, and they were designed to look like of a mere painting. In fact, Cactu told his director of photography to light it like a mirror. Because of this, even though the story takes place in the 18th century, the costumes are that of the 17th century. But that was okay for Cactu, as he thought the story was timeless. There are two basic settings for the film. The first at Belle's home, with her two sisters, brother, father, and Avenue, and the other at the Beast's castle. Now, both settings have a totally different feel, which is wonderful. At home, it's talky and frantic. There are shots where the camera flies back and forth between characters arguing. But at the castle, things slow down. Shots linger. Dialogue is sparse. Everything seems magical, and Belle seems to move like a ballerina. Well, that's because Josette Day was a dancer who had, who had been acting since she was five. Her first scene when she enters the castle was shot in slow motion with a heavenly choir playing, and it's just gorgeous. The home speaks to her, telling her where to go, and so does the magic mirror. The mirror lets her check in on her father. Often during the film, Day is positioned almost like a marble statue. The film, as you can imagine, was made with all practical special effects, but not just practical, but simple, yet effective. When describing the effects, Cactu said he wanted to use the techniques of silent film pioneer Georges Millais. The halls of the castle are lined with enchanted candelabras, which are held by human arms which come out of the wall. When they light, one after another, it was done by shooting in reverse. The candles are actually being blown out, one after another, but then it's shown backwards. There's a scene in which the beautiful Belle, as she first enters the castle, travels down a hallway with white curtains blowing in the wind. But she doesn't walk, she glides. This was done by having the actress stand on a platform with wheels, hidden by her long dress, and being pulled with ropes by stagehands. This is one of the most marvelous scenes in the film, and it was one of the ones that Cactu used to convince his financiers to give him the money. When Belle first sees the beast, she faints. He picks her up and carries her to her bedroom. As he enters the room, her clothes magically change from a simple old dress to that of a princess's gown. There are faces carved in stone next to the fireplace that move and look around. These were real actors playing the sculptures who had to stand on their knees for long periods. Imagine spending long hours on your knees next to a fireplace, hair stiff with pomade, and faces and hair covered with gray ash. 
Now, I've never read the source material, but from what I've read, there are moments that he used dialogue taken directly from it, but also changed much of it as well. He simplified the story by doing things like cutting out two of her brothers, as well as the husbands of her sisters. In the book, the beast is more, well, a beast, while in this version, he's more of a human with a large heart that only looks like a beast. This might have been influenced by 20th century films like King Kong and Frankenstein, which were both variations of Beauty and the Beast. Yet he also added the instinct of the beast to act like an animal, killing forest animals to eat. There's a scene in which Belle and the Beast are trying to have a conversation outside, but the Beast sees a deer run by. We see the Beast's ears move. This, by the way, was done with a crewman behind him with a stick. Anyway, Belle is annoyed that the Beast's mind is elsewhere. She asks him, Are you listening to me? I'm talking to you. And you can see in his face that he's trying to resist the instinct to hunt and kill the deer. Moments later, there's a touching scene in which Belle lets the beast drink water from her hands. In a later scene, Belle comes out of the bedroom just as the beast comes in from outside, disheveled and covered in blood. He is just killed. She looks at him with disgust, saying, Aren't you ashamed? This is when we, as the audience, start seeing that Belle has become the lady of the castle, almost treating the beast like a child that has done something wrong or a husband that has come home drunk. She tells him, clean yourself up and go to bed. I think that might be one of my favorite scenes. Speaking of the Beast, Jean Marais spent five hours a day having the makeup put on and could only eat mush food fed to him with a spoon. The rest of the cast couldn't even understand what he was saying through it. He dubbed all his lines in post with a few effects added on. For an actor, it must have been hard to convey any type of emotion with only the eyes to work with, yet somehow he did. For a while, he was in the hospital, and Cactu tried to substitute another actor, but it just didn't work out. Whatever Murray was doing, the other actor just couldn't, and none of the footage was used. Okay, now here's a big spoiler. I'm going to talk about the end of the film. Hey, you've been warned. When the Beast becomes a prince... Just after Belle says she loves him, she is shocked to see he looks like Avano. Her first response, with a look of disappointment, is, Where is the beast? He asks, What's wrong, Belle? It's almost if you miss my ugliness. I thought that was a nice touch. Anyway, the music of the film is wonderful. Maybe a little over the top in certain areas, but great just the same. It was composed by Georges Ulrich, who had a long career scoring films such as The Lavender Hill Mob, Moulin Rouge, Roman Holiday, the 1956 version of The Hunchback Notre Dame, and The Innocents. Ulrich's score for the film was different from what Cactu had imagined, so Cactu waited until it was all done before giving it a listen. They had worked together so many times that Cactu had full confidence in him. Cactu wrote, I wanted the full effect to be a surprise. Ulri Alicon did the cinematography, and it's fantastic. Alicon had a long career after beauty, including Anna Karenina, Roman Holiday, Five Miles to Midnight, Top Copy, and Wings of Desire. Now, for those who haven't watched the film, 
You might think, well, you've told me all about it. Why should I? But I haven't told you everything. There's so much of this film I haven't even mentioned. Like the magic glove, the magic key, the worthless brother, her diamond tears, the necklace, the fate of her sisters, Avino, and so much more. The Criterion version, which is a beautiful copy, is available for like four bucks on Amazon Prime. Warning, it is in French with English subtitles, but that's probably the way you should watch it. So, Nancy, it's time for your day in court. On the count of wasting Jeff's time with an inferior film, the court finds you... innocent. My time, of course, wasn't wasted. As you could tell by this review, not only did I enjoy the film... More than I expected, actually, but I enjoyed researching it as well. Thank you so much for recommending this film. I am glad I watched it. Somewhere under this parched desert, a secret lies buried. Hey, I got something here. Do you believe in werewolves? No. What the hell? It could be the discovery of the century. Come on in. We're expecting you. A secret so dark, you could never believe it. Until it happens to you. When the rising moon fans the flames of desire, the beast emerges, and no one is safe. Can you keep a secret? Werewolf. From Apex Entertainment. Rated R. A little bit before I go, I'm sure there are many experts on Cactu or Beauty and the Beast who will listen to this and say, what? You skipped this or didn't talk about that. You got this wrong. What about this? And first, you'd probably be right. Second, if you're an expert, why are you listening to this? But seriously, I probably could have talked for an hour or two on the film alone. But, you know, I try to keep the show to about a half hour, you know, even though I went a little over today. I will have a couple of links in the show notes if you want to know more. On YouTube, there are two commentary tracks that you can play along with the movie. One by film historian Arthur Knight and the other by writer and cultural historian Sir Christopher Frayling. I listened to them both while I watched the movie, and it was very interesting stuff. I read a review that said Cactus' film Orpheus is one of his best films, so I think I'll watch that next. Hey, you know what? I'm always looking for film suggestions, and I'm still looking for a film to watch next month. I'm waiting on one of my listeners to make a suggestion, so if you've got a suggestion, why don't you send it to me at my email address? That's coffee with Jeff, all one word, at gmail.com. I also have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, a Twitter page, and even a website, and you can use any of those platforms to get a hold of me. So next week, which is the fourth Monday of the month, I'll be talking about a film that has been featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 or one of its spinoffs. Next week, we will be looking at one of my favorite MST episodes, Werewolf, a 1995 film that's completely bonkers, even without the riffing of Mike and the Bots. So I hope you'll join me. I also hope I can find some real information about the film. Now, if you could, if you could leave me a review at whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. 
Again, I'd like to thank Nancy Fry for suggesting today's film and for providing some interesting insights into the film. Thanks, Nancy. I want to thank you for listening, and I'll be back next Monday with Werewolf. Thanks a lot. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They're 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. The Dallas Multipass. Multi-pass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And 